And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I think for anyone who's ever looked at history, and we do that a lot on this show, I think you will find some a couple of unique things in that people, as we've evolved as a society, we have brought leaders to rule us all, whether it is by choice or by force. We have leaders among us, and we have for most of our civilized history. And when you really think about it, these leaders, these people who are brought into power, who have control over large segments of our population, we don't know what we're getting all the time. You know, in, in the modern era, we, you know, we, we elect people, but even in, you know, we're doing this from the United States and even from the United States perspective, when you're electing the, the president who some say has, you know, is the leader of the free world, you, you really got two choices. You got one guy or another guy. Uh, sometimes you got a girl. Uh, very rarely. <laughs> so that is, that's what we're looking at. So very few choices. So what does that mean? How does that, how does that relate to today's show? Well, Today's show is about how madness shaped history with Dr. Chris Ferguson. And I love this show and I love this idea because, especially in the United States, you have so few choices. And when there were monarchies in place, you had zero choice. When you have dictators in place, you have zero choice. What if those people are crazy? What if they don't have the best intentions? What, and, and how, what if people like that come to power at a very crucial point? in a society or in the world's history. How does madness shape history? How important are these positions and what can happen when people in those positions go wrong, I guess you could say? That is the topic of today's show and I just found Dr. Ferguson's book to be absolutely amazing. We're going to jump right into this because we have a lot to get into. So, Dr. Ferguson, thank you so much for being on the show today. Let's let's get off on the right foot here. Uh, do you like do you like Chris? Do you like do you like Fergie? Do you like Dr. Ferguson? Chris the Conqueror? Do you call yourself Chris the Conqueror? Do your students call you that? Well, I would love it if anybody called me Chris the Conqueror, but no, it's usually nobody uh, nobody thought of it until now. If we could get this started as a as an actual trend, that'd be pretty amazing. Well, that's what I'm going to refer to you as as Chris the Conqueror. Uh, I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to incite the rage uh, of any conqueror, uh, anyone who's who's yeah. do- dominating the will of others. Uh, so, so Chris the Conqueror, you are at Stetson. You're at Stetson University in Florida, right? You're you're an associate professor there. That's correct. Yeah, uh, so I'm a full professor actually. These full days. professor. Okay. Yeah, I gotta say, against better wisdom, they actually uh, decided to bump me up one. So. Well, that's great. Did you know this is this is fascinating stuff? I'm sure you know this already. But Stetson University is actually named after John B. Stetson, the founder of the Stetson uh, Hat Company. It is. Yeah, that is absolutely true. I, I thought this was incredible. So I'm a big Wild West buff. A lot of the shows, actually, uh, a lot of the shows that I do are on the Wild West. For some reason, I just like profiling the amazing things. And he created the, uh, he was really the haberdasher of the Wild West. And he created mm-hmm. the Wild West hat called the Boss of the Plains in 1865. Uh, this is pretty cool. And it is money from that prospecting money, pioneer money that helped build yep. that university. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. He, uh, like a lot of people, had a winter home down here in mm. Florida, and uh, it still exists. You know, if you ever have a chance to come down to Central Florida, you can visit the Stetson Home, which is uh, not owned by the university, uh, but uh, is a lovely place to visit nonetheless. That is great. Do they make you wear a hat when you come in, or do they make you take off your hat, give you one to take <laughs> off when you walk in? <laughs> There, there is no compulsory hat wearing uh, as part of the <laughs> visit to, to the uh, uh, the Stetson home, but uh, a great time to visit it. If you ever do, uh, you know, come down around Christmas time, they actually 
there's, it's owned by uh, you know uh, a couple now uh, that's a privately owned home, but they open it up for you know tours. Yeah. Uh, and I'm guessing that's how they make their money. They decorate that house for Christmas. That's incredible. Really? Uh, like like to the to the point that you know one of them has got to have a personality disorder that they're you know that they're so <laughs> you know, obsessive about the decorations uh, you know uh, for the for this home because it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So it's it's cool to see around Christmas. But you can go you can go anytime, of course, uh, to check it out. You should make an appendices to your book, How Madness Shaped the John B. Stetson Home in Central Florida, because <laughs> it sounds kind of like right up the alley. You wouldn't want to put these guys in power. That's, 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 well, you never know. You it it know. depends on what you're putting them in power for. You know, if uh, it's uh, something requiring extreme dedication and uh, decorating, then uh, <laughs> they may be the, exactly the people you want. <laughs> right. You know, it was funny when I was looking up some of this stuff. There is a Chris Ferguson who is a big-time poker player, or at least was until mm-hmm. he was caught up in a scam in, in, in a Ponzi scheme in, in 2013. He was actually yeah. one of my favorite poker players for a long oh, time right? until that. Yeah, I, I loved the World Series of Poker. So it was funny. It was kind of difficult to muddle through everything because you guys have the exact same name. Even I think he's no yeah. even Jay, so uh, it, was, <laughs> it was difficult to weed through. I, I, I sometimes joke, I'm the least famous of the famous Chris Ferguson's, uh, either not that I'm famous at all, uh, but uh, there's an astronaut, Chris Ferguson, and actually one of my favorite stories is one time getting an email from uh, someone and it was you know this guy starts off this email like you know my father has been following your career for years and you know he it, he's on his last legs you know he's got yeah. a, an illness and you know it would mean the world to him if you could send a signed picture of yourself you know it would just make his dreams come true and i was like so touched by this email and yeah. then eventually starts getting into like you know and the last time that you were on the space shuttle that i said like, wait a minute <laughs> oh you should have rolled with it chris you should have sent him a, like, gotten a headshot of you and signed it to him you'd have been like <laughs> i would have loved to see his uh, face when he did that it'll uh, be the last practical joke he ever uh <laughs> <laughs> hey go out with a bang i would have done that i would have rolled with that completely because i'm pretty sure i'm probably the least famous i know there's a couple daniel j glenn's that are actually actors so i think i'm probably the least famous. Uh, okay. so you and i are in the same club uh uh, and I'm proud to be a part of it. So now you're speaking of games. You're kind of known as you, as a, a psychologist who kind of takes a look at video game violence and its relation to adolescent behavior, which was, mm-hmm. was kind of mentioned. There's, I mean, you've got you've done tons of work on that, lots of appearances. Uh, how did tell me a little bit about your background and how does does that kind of I feel like there's a correlation between that and kind of this book we're talking about how madness shaped history. So just tell me a little yeah. about your background and like and like how you came to this idea for this book. Yeah, so that's a great question. And of course, you know, if we have enough imagination, we can usually find a correlation between anything. Right, exactly. um, you know, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of the fun I of it, right? To. Yeah, uh, trying to get the same yeah. good. <laughs> Well, my my background is in clinical psychology, actually. So I'm a you know I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I've been in ac- academia for uh, you know many years. So so actually, my my initial interest in psychology, like a lot of psychology majors, is kind of the stereotypical like you know profiling serial murder, you know mass murder, you know the, the worst uh, elements <laughs> of. Uh, human, you know, behavior. So like every, like everybody else who's like a psycho major, I thought, oh, I'll be a profiler or something Oh like my that, God. You know, uh, Chris, I don't mean yeah. to stop you here, but there was a brief period in my life where I thought I was going to be an, a profiler for the FBI, and I was actually a psych major for, I think, for a, for a semester and a half, so I'm right there with you. I didn't get I didn't evolve into someone who was writing books about madness, but you and I started at the same point almost. Yeah, the, the tricky thing about that, of course, is you know because I you know, see you know all the time just like dozens of students who want to become profilers, and of course the trick is. is there are exponentially more people who want to be profilers than people that need to be profiled. You know, so that is a, kind of a tricky thing for that particular career right, right. Uh, path. So some some people do it. I mean, it does. It's sort of like being a rock star, right? I mean, you can mm. you can make it happen, but right. uh, odds are kind of against you, which is you know part of what I have to tell you know students quite a bit is just to have a plan plan B. Right. But uh, but that was actually kind of how I started. It was really I mean I actually did do work with uh, you know local jails and uh, youth detention and. And that kind of stuff. So I have, you know, some degree of a criminal criminal justice background, you know, and that's why I think a lot of that shows up in the book, you know, and that some of the examples we I do talk about are, you know, serial killers and mass murderers, and uh, in some cases extending that to people in power, and in some mm-hmm. cases uh, more traditional 
criminals like Ted Bundy and uh, the Sandy Hook shooter. Right. Yeah, so the, the the deviation, it really was a deviation into, you know, a very long one into video games, kind of came from my interest in, in some of that, particularly around the time of the uh, the Columbine shooting in 1999. Mm-hmm. There was right. all this narrative about, you know, sort of video games and doom and the idea that these, you know, nice suburban kids, you know, were somehow corrupted by, you know, playing violent video games. So I, so I get kind of curious, uh, I mean, first, of course, about the empirical data and whether there really was data to sort of inform this particular narrative, but also kind of get interested in how narratives are shaped, you know. So how, how do people come to certain types of beliefs about how the world works uh, and uh, how do they pick and choose data to support those beliefs and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and what kind of impact does that have on things like policy and, and um, you know, science and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, I, think that, I, I think that's a really interesting point that you're making there because that's really key to really understanding how do people shape their worldview and then how do they yeah. pick the things around them that support that and kind of ignore the things that detract it? Or detract from it, I should say. Yeah, and essentially because you can kind of see these processes at work both in science, you know, and in, in history. I mean, one of the things that's kind of interesting about psychology is, uh, you know, we're going through this period of, you know, it's being called a replication crisis, right? This idea that all these different beliefs about how the mind works that we, you know, have been informing introductory psychology students about for decades now apparently are not true, you know. So even some like famous experiments, like the Stanford Prison Experiment and things mm. like that, are, are kind of coming under a lot of uh, renewed, uh, right. uh, you know, skepticism, criticism, you know, whatever you want to refer to it as. But uh, but we see the same thing with history, right? You know, oftentimes, you know, as, as a cliche is, you know, history is written by the victors. But yeah, you know, there is a sense of oftentimes the way that we discuss history. You know, it's kind of informed by what we want history to say about today, you know, or or what we want to take from it that can support our agendas, you know, social, political, or otherwise, that we want to push, you know, in, uh, you know, current politics or current sociology or, or whatever we have. So uh, that, that seems to be kind of a fundamental aspect of humanity is that we kind of, you know, form these narratives and then we select data to support them and ignore data that doesn't support them. And that can be kind of a tricky way of, uh, when we're trying to get to, you know, what, you know, quote unquote, the truth is, you know, and there there certainly are truths about psychology and there are truths about history, you know, either something did or didn't happen. Uh, but sometimes, you know, trying to get the evidence for what did or didn't happen or how people do or don't behave can be a lot trickier because it is filtered through all these layers of, you know, our personal beliefs and what we want to think are, uh, you know, are true. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's very true. And I, I now, so the madness part of that, the how you came to this, is is that basically just from your love of serial killers and, and wanting to be a profiler, and then you thought to yourself, how do these things, what's the junction point between that and, and history? Yeah, I, I think in part. I mean, obviously, I don't, I, I don't think anybody would question that I'm, yeah, I seem to have this, you know, ongoing interest in, in things that are sort of dark about human nature, uh, you know, for sure. Uh, so certainly there is an overlap between sort of my interest in, you know, criminal justice and, and uh, forensic psychology with uh, some of this. But but I was also interested because I, you know, was, you know, I've read c- contemporary books, you know, related to history and sort of like the development of societies and stuff. And it seems in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, there has been sort of this, you know, sort of shift in the narrative that's focusing on kind of the idea that, you know, uh, history is to a large degree shaped by geography, you know, or accidents, you know, or mm-hmm. culture and stuff. So it kind of took the personal away from history uh, to a large degree. And of course, you know, the things that shape history are very complicated. I mean, these these things like geography and and uh, you know, culture and, and and accidents all all certainly do matter. But there was kind of this, at least in my perception, this uh, de-emphasis on people. You know, so there was this idea that you know these quote unquote great person hypothesis of history no longer mattered, you know, very much that, you know, we would have a United States today with or without George Washington, you know, for instance, um, and that he was largely, you know, uncritical, you know, to the shaping of, of mm-hmm. uh, modern history. And, and, I, and I think there's a certain point to some of that, you know, um, but on the other hand, you know, it kind of occurred to me that there are these really, you know, interesting individuals um, who were quite extreme in many respects, uh, who in some cases did 
great things, but in a lot of other cases, really imploded (laughs) kind of dramatically and uh, to some degree took their societies with them, sometimes short term, sometimes much longer term. And, And I thought it was interesting to kind of look at some of those individuals and how people with more extreme traits, whether those are good or bad, uh, really did have a dramatic impact as individuals on the, their cultures, on their societies, and in some cases may have really shaped history in uh, in, in fundamental ways. Um, so I, I think it was kind of in- for me it was kind of interesting to look back at the personal, you know, and maybe make something of an argument that uh, you know certainly geography matters, certainly culture matters, but sometimes individuals do matter um, as well. And uh, that can be something to kind of keep an eye on, you know, even in, you know, here's this idea again of, you know, history shaping, you know, modern narratives. But, you know, it's something that we can still keep an eye on even for modern politics and stuff where we are kind of focusing on individuals and, and who we want to lead in the U.S. or other countries. And, uh, you know, does it does it really matter who is in charge or are we all kind of uh, – on the railroad together, and we can't really control it. And and I and I think it's you know a combination of both to some extent. And 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 looking back at history can be informative for us as we consider where our culture is going today. Yeah, well, I think you know there's this interesting. I, I was a, a a film student, so my uh, my touchstones are always in film. But there's this there was this interesting movie called Battleship Potemkin, and it was one of the first mm-hmm. movies that featured a, a hero as, as being a group of people who kind of take over this this battleship. Uh, they're the they're the crew mutinying. I forget the exact I forget the exact storyline, but but it's a group. That's the their protagonist is a group of people, and I think especially in our media obsessed culture, and and we love narratives and we love stories. There's always a hero, there's always a villain, and they're individual people. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. they're groups. You know, like the Nazis are always an evil group that we can always look at, where everyone they're universally reviled. So it's easy. Yeah. They're an easy group to say like, they're the bad guys and here are the good guys. You know, and, and as I mentioned, the wild west, it's very easy to see in the movies who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. Cause they wore a black or white hat. Sometimes a Stetson, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it was, it's very, very clear. And, and I think that it's just, it's just so much easier to tell stories that way, which is, I think why we, where we hold on to that. But I'd love this yeah. idea of, of, of people in critical role moments in our history and not in just our history. I mean, humanity's history, not like just the U S but in, in the world's history where people have come to power in critical moments. And it has, as you said, you know, it's been great or it's imploded. I was actually kind of surprised because the book is organized a little differently than I expected going in. Cause I kind of thought it would be more organized by, uh, people and events, and then explaining why they were important. But it's it's almost organized by psychological psychoses, and then examples of that psychoses in history. So I and I only say that because my my notes may be a little jumbled because um, I wanted to kind of do because I really want to focus on the, these cool moments in history where critical people were kind of vital in changing things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think you you have this great quote in the book, uh, this idea of societies. Do they like the idea of a predictability of a well-reasoned rational ruler and getting, you know, maybe no progress as a society or maybe a little bit? Or rolling the dice on someone with mental peccadillos, as you call them, you know. (laughs) Uh, and, And sometimes you get Alexander the Great and sometimes you get Caligula. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> very, very similar, similar people, the way you kind of break them down, obviously very different outcomes. Yeah. But in a sense, the way you kind of break it down, they're, you know, they're very similar. Uh, so how does, um, so let's, we're going to go obviously the, the peccadillo route. Uh, but so how do yeah. you, in your book, so just how, how do you define madness? I think that that's such a, it's such an ethereal term in a way, you know, um, what does yeah. that mean? And how is that different than like, let's say a mental disability or are they the same thing? You know, what does that mean today? What did it mean then? And what do you mean by it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, and of course, in fairness, these are all terms that, have uh, this is a, a point I try to make in the book. I mean, the, all these things are kind of uh, they ha- they have a almost platonic reality, if you will, but they also ha- are very gray. And that the distinction between a person who does and doesn't have a mental illness, for instance, can be difficult to pin down, you know, uh, to some right. extent. And, and of course, we keep redefining 
what a mental illness is. I mean, quite you know, quite literally. I mean, you know, the uh, American Psychiatric Association's uh, their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is kind of like the Bible of mental illness, like literally just keeps redefining. You know, what what sort of behaviors count or uh, you know don't count. So you, you might you know not be mentally ill in 2012, and all of a sudden mentally ill in 2013. Right. Uh, there's because, a political uh, element to that, I imagine. I mean, it's not just because yeah. yeah. it's, it's not just clinical. There's political stuff in there as yeah. well. I mean, homosexuality was considered a, a mental illness, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. And I mean, just I think just in maybe the 80s or 90s was it pulled out. Yeah. And that's extraordinarily political. Yeah, I mean, there is this kind of idea that even some psychiatrists raise is that, you know, to some extent, mental illness is, as a concept is used. Yeah, certainly there are individuals who really do have illnesses with the brain, you know, with schizophrenia and such. Uh, But at other times, you know, mental illness can be used to sort of define what is socially acceptable. So if you sort of step outside, like like with homosexuality, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what and uh, and we're seeing kind of the same thing with gaming now. There are these kind of like gaming disorder diagnoses where the idea is if you kind of like make old people mad, then, you know, you're mentally ill, you know, you know, so some of that is, you know, a little bit dodgy, and, you know, in terms of like uh, the validity of psychiatry, you know, and I'm not, uh, obviously, once again, I'm not saying that there aren't certain realities about mental illness, there clearly are, right. uh, but uh, trying to find the, the threshold, if you will, between, you know, a person who's simply different from average, uh, you know, as opposed to someone who actually has a you know, a mental illness, uh, you know, can be, you know, kind of tricky. And, you know, and that extends to, you know, kind of going back to your original question, like what, what is the difference between, you know, uh, there really are three terms. There's, there's mental illness, there's madness, and then there's insanity, you know, which is mm. a legal term. Uh, but they all kind of <laughs> right. get thrown around, you know, uh, you know, quite a bit with each other. No, I think, I, I think that that's right. I mean, and I think that, you know, really for, I guess, the purposes, uh, you know, because really this is a, the question you're asking in the book is a really a larger psychological question because, and, and I think for the book, I, th- I think, or at least in, in terms of our discussion, it's really destructive to, to um, I think you deci- define it as kind of behavior that persists despite its destructive nature to oneself and others. And I think that that's right. pretty fair. And at least it's it's concise enough for people to kind of wrap their heads around for the, the things we're going to be talking about. Um, you know, in, in one of my other interviews, I interviewed, he's called the world's, well, at least I call him, I dubbed him the world's friendliest psychopath. And his name's Dr. James okay. Fallon. And he's a professor of neurology at UC Irvine. And he's he has a psychopathic brain. Like his brain is 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 this it's identical to serial killers and other psychopaths that yeah. are out there but i mean at least to the best of my knowledge he's not engaging in those activities and right. you know so the path to madness is complex and and i sure. think you know the path and in the path to political power is even more complex and i think mm-hmm. that it's it's the combination of all of that kind of that kind of gives us these these rulers and these moments now you kind of describe along those lines the dark triad of psychopathy uh, what is that and and how does that form yeah so this is a a, a trio of uh, psychological characteristics uh, that has been subject at this point to dozens of, of research studies and it's really a combination of your Typical psychopathy. So again, these are individuals who usually, you know, have difficulty feeling empathy for other individuals or feeling bad, you know, for their own naughty behaviors, if you will. So sort of lack of conscience Mm -hmm. and a lack of ability to take another person's perspective, which kind of combines into a perception of other people as objects, you know, essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. So no more than you would apologize for breaking your chair would they apologize for, you know, breaking your, yeah, this would be a little bit extreme here, but, you know, breaking your leg, you know, that sort of thing. Or your neck. (laughs) They wouldn't feel bad about it. You know, they they might recognize that's something they shouldn't have done, but they might, you know, in terms of like feeling it emotionally, it's a little bit of a struggle for them. Um, The second is narcissism, which is this kind of sense of oneself being better than others. Um, and then the third is this, you know, Machiavellian uh, type of personality, which is kind of like scheming, you know, elements, you know, mm-hmm. the uh, means to an end, uh, you know, moral perspective. As long as you get what you want, how you get there doesn't really matter ethically, you know. So this mm-hmm. combination right. of psychopath, narcissist, and Machiavellianism, you know, is what's known as this dark triad. And so individuals that have that combination of these three features, 
uh, have been identified in a lot of research as being, you know, sort of most prone to negative, what we you know, would typically consider in, you know, in society as being negative behaviors. You know, that could be everything from more criminal behaviors towards more unethical behaviors if they're in business or in politics or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. They're kind of out for themselves is probably the simplest way of putting it. But in the meanest and, you know, most negative way, <laughs> we, can, we can kind of, we're, we're all a little bit out for ourselves, but, you know, uh, they're really, really out for themselves. And and uh, don't necessarily worry too much about the consequences to others, uh, the ethics, the morality of the things uh, that they do. And and with those boundaries taken away, that places them at greater risk for engaging in activities most of the rest of us would think of as being antisocial or unethical or undesirable. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's that, that I mean that, that's really the key because everyone should be out for themselves. I think. I mean, everyone has to look out for themselves. Yeah. But most people have, you know, I guess, for lack of a better term, the hang-ups of caring both about the results of their actions and how it affects others. Yeah. And, you know, the people you're talking about, they, they're, those, those ties are severed completely. Mm-hmm. And so they, they act in ways that, um, that are very different than what most people would consider to be ethical. And I think that, that that's really key to under, really understanding that concept. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really crazy. So let, let's, let's give some examples here because this is this is really the fun part of some of these examples in history yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we're going to start with the softball and, and it's cliche and i don't I, I don't like starting with hitler and the nazis yeah. i don't love it because everyone has <laughs> done them to death right so i'm not doing anything new what i like about it is it just so neatly fits into what we're talking about it's a great yeah. starting place so we'll just briefly let's let's briefly talk about that because you make some interesting points about hitler and and he was you know besides all the the personality traits we're talking about he guided human history mm-hmm. you know and so did the people around him and we'll get to stalin as well and, yeah. and mao um these are all people who really changed history by their rise to power and in the book you talk about how a mad society can also allow for the mad to take over so how do all of these things kind of coalesce with the rise of hitler and how does he fit into you know the the scope of your book yeah, that's that's a great question. So, I mean, obviously, if you're going to write, you know, a book about Madison history, you're almost. I think it's somewhere in the contract you have to at least mention Hitler. You know, it's, it's, right, it, right. it would just be weird. You know, and, and, and certainly, over, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I made the joke somewhere in there. You, you know, you go into a library you, and you can't throw a rock without hitting a book about Hitler. Yeah. So, yeah, I certainly right, yeah. wrote about Hitler, realizing that this is well trodden ground. People have dissected his life and the, you know, the history of Nazi Germany. You know, to uh, you know, to to, to death. You know, so I mean, I actually didn't focus a whole lot on sort of like rehashing World War II and all that, because I, I think that's been done, you know, pretty well in other places. But really just kind of considering him and his own development and and uh, how he happened on the scene. As, as In many ways, I think that, you know, with a little bit of a less of a, you know, have things been a little bit different in, you know, German society at the time in the, you know, the VMR Republic, you know, we... Things might have, you know, he might have just been this eccentric guy that nobody paid a lot of attention to, other than, you know, mm-hmm. to throw him into jail when he acted up a little bit, you know. So, right. and, and it really kind of developed that the, uh, the German Republic was already beginning to head into a more authoritarian direction by the time that uh, Hitler came onto the scene. And you had, you know, the other power brokers in the German Republic thought that they could use this individual, you know, Hitler, uh, for their own. They thought they could control him. And, and it turned out that, you know, he was just savvier and a, and a greater risk taker uh, in many respects and uh, mm-hmm. than, than they were. So he was able to basically turn the tables um, against them and, uh, you know, and assume power. So you, you see this like combination of, you know, German society at that point being in a really critical phase, you know, things were not working out well economically, uh, or socially, you know, you had these divisions between people on the far left and far right. This is going to sound a little familiar. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and people were sort of interested in turning to someone who was a stronger person that could kind of like assume some level of order and control and promote, you know, a more positive vision of uh, Germany's place uh, in society. Because, you know, the Germans were still quite... Um, anxious, I guess, might be the way of, of how things turned out in World War One, and and uh, you know there there certainly was this narrative that victory had been stolen from them, and and all kinds of other stuff. So um, 
but yeah, I mean, it's it's really sort of intriguing. Like, you know, I I'm I'm not by nature like a, a super risk taker, and so I look at like the decisions that that Hitler in particular made, oftentimes overruling people that were you know either in the Nazi Party or later on as you know as military commanders, and taking these mm-hmm. what look like extreme risks and actually winning. You know, and actually, and, right. and you know. Part of his road to success was his willingness to take what still looks like crazy risks, uh, you know, sometimes, and at least initially um, have those risks pay off in, in, in big ways. And so that kind of gave him a lot of authority and a lot of power and put Germany you know, really at the center of Euro- European politics um, in a very obviously harsh and authoritarian way. In the, the late 1930s, you know, and that so it, it paid off for Germany for a while. But of course, the problem with Hitler is he kept taking risks. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the, the the dice aren't going to be in your favor. And uh, you know, what worked for a limited period of time for him and for Germany, you know, there are all these alternative histories about like what if he had just been able to settle at some point? You know, once Germany had absorbed Austria and most of Czechoslovakia, you know, what if he had just stopped? You know, for a little while. Um, how different history might have been if he had just waited five years to start World War II, for instance. Yeah, the outcome could have been mm. different. Um, but the reality is, is that's not who he was, you know. And uh, he got to the point he got to in 1938, you know, when Germany was really at the height of its influence, you know, through who he was. And he couldn't stop being Hitler in order to sort of save that. Uh, that point in history uh, for uh, you know for Germany. So yeah, I mean you do see the sort of you know sense of you know that particular moment in time was unique, and you had an individual who took advantage of it. And of course, once Hitler and his you know cronies became powerful in Germany, then you see a change in the incentive structure throughout society. You know, so that these you know people most of us would think of as being you know, just crazy, you know, we would never like, you know, promote these people to positions of authority. Uh, all of a sudden, they had a road forward for themselves, you know, so right. it kind of, you know, sort of opens up this question in my mind is really, you know, was Germany, you know, uniquely psychopathic in, in 1938? Uh, or is the sense that we all could sort of become, you know, psychopaths under the right conditions, or at least as a society become psychopaths under the, under the right conditions? Or is it the sort of thing that certain moments in history actually allow people who already are psychopaths to, you know, rise, uh, you know, up when they otherwise would not have been likely to do so at, uh, you know, uh, at, at a more calm um, period of history? So those, those are the sort of things I think are kind of, you know, interesting questions that come out of, uh, you know, Germany's experience with, with Hitler. Uh, you, you know, you, and, and I think all of that's right. What's What's interesting to me is, as I was reading this, I, I guess I didn't exactly make this this connection. That I'm sure millions of other people have made before, but the 1930s, you know, I would almost argue that it's like the worst period for madmen coming into power in in history because you had Hitler rising in the 30s, mm. you got Stalin coming to power, and you got Chairman Mao Zedong. All of these people were, were arguably some of the largest, I mean, it's like easily top five mass murderers in history, all coming yeah. to power on, on major economies yeah. on the world stage. And and it, it is, I mean, this is, I mean, world, I mean, it's more like history war too. You know, I mean, it's like this is, World yeah. War II is, is really, you know, and I think why it makes for such great narratives is that it really was good versus evil. I mean, it was, it was, there was a lot at stake here. So let's talk about Stalin, who, you know, for some reason, Stalin always kind of gets swept under the rug when you start talking about madmen taking over in history. Um, but yeah. he was almost worse than, than, than Hitler. Um, so how did, how did him rising to power, what effect did it have, and how was it kind of similar or different than Hitler's rise? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, and, and and of course it's kind of interesting. You just said you have these like figures all rose to power, like Stalin and, and Hitler and Mao between like the 30s and 40s, and it is interesting because there is this kind of like you know ongoing like debate about like who's worst, right? You know, right. Hitler, Mao, yeah. Stalin, and you know it's like you know it's hard to really say that you know. So it depends on how you define it because uh, you know Hitler, you know, is obviously the you know 
perennial bad guy, um, but like Stalin killed more people than than Hitler did. But does it matter that Hitler killed people that were not Germans, you know, or at least were you know uh, right. subgroups like Jews or, right. or or gypsies as opposed to Stalin? Well, he just killed other Russians, you know, and so right. or, you know not exclusively, but you know, and same thing with Mao. Well, it was mostly other Chinese that died under you know, uh, and it's funny because you get people who make that argument that <laughs> yeah, intention must matter, right? Yeah, like that. That's that is interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. who's better to kill. <laughs> Like, oops, I killed, you know, millions of my own citizens, you know, but it was, I had a purpose, I had a theory, you know, and that makes it all right. Um, You know, I I mean, Mao probably killed more people than anybody, you know, uh, in history, but there still are defenders of of Mao, you know, to the present day, uh, which is, to me, really fascinating in a way. But, but yeah, I mean, in, in all of these cases, or most of these cases, at very least, you had, you know, a society for one reason or other that had partially disintegrated, that was under stress. Um, That certainly was true in Germany in the 1930s. It was true for Russia or what became the Soviet Union beginning in 1917, um, you know, with the Bolshevik revolution that, that brought the communists to power. Uh, so you, you really end up with these these countries that are in a moment of chaos. I mean, even Italy, you know, post World War One, uh, you know, with the rise of Mussolini, you kind of see kind of a similar thing there, mm-hmm. uh, where there's some disaffection uh, within society. It wasn't as extreme as with Germany, but it was it was there. Um, and, and so you see like these openings, right? You know, society is kind of. Or, or the fabric or the social contract society has kind of fallen apart, uh, at least in part. Uh, and people are unhappy. They're anxious. They're nervous. They don't know what the future holds for them. And then you have someone come in and say that, you know, I'll take control and I have a plan, you know, for uh, advancing this. And people can get attracted to this idea of an authoritarian figure when they're scared. Um, in a way, you know, you don't want uh, Jimmy Carter coming in and saying, right. well, we'll all sit around and talk about it. Right. You know, right. um, you know, sometimes you want the, you know, no offense to Jimmy Carter. Right. Um, you know, uh, you, you kind of get the sense that people want someone who's going to assure them that everything is going to be OK and they'll be willing to trade some of their personal freedoms. Or at least some people will be willing to trade some of their personal freedoms for this sense that, they can be assured of success in the future, and uh, and also that they that their role in history, their role in society, is is a guaranteed one. I mean, of course, with a lot of these situations with like like Hitler and and Stalin, there also were you know the, the countries were coming from a disaster, you know, lost in World War One, the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, you know, and and people I think needed a sense of uh, you, you know. To, to borrow the phrase, you know, here's why, you know, we're great again, um, in a way. And and that's, I think, is a natural human inclination. And I think sometimes one we have to be a little bit careful about, because the more you tell people that they suck, the more they're going to be willing to turn to someone who says that they don't suck, mm-hmm. um, you know, after all. Um, and, and I worry that a little bit about that with narratives today, where there is this kind of sense of, like, uh, there's, yeah, there, there there historically has been a narrative about sort of like American exceptionalism, right? That we're really, really great compared to everybody else. But there, right. there's been this you know evolvement of a counter narrative of like like reverse American exceptionalism in the last few decades of just how terrible the United States is. And you have to be a little bit wary about that because you can kind of turn people into the sense of being willing to reach for someone who will assure them of their greatness, um, right. and that person might not really be who you want um, to uh, you know to lead a society or to uh, you know. To, to lead the, the country. So you know, in a lot of these situations you really have, particularly when you're talking about authoritarian, strong people, um, and most of them are men, these individuals really manage to capitalize on a really chaotic negative situation for their cultures um, and did so by projecting strength and unity. Um, and that allowed people to gives to them a lot of power they might not have otherwise done and sacrifice a lot of personal freedoms that they might not have otherwise been comfortable doing. Um, and I think that's kind of like the similarity, particularly between like Hitler and Stalin and, uh, and, and Mao as well, you know, perhaps a little bit less for, you know, uh, Mussolini and Tojo in, in Japan, but they're, they're kind of these similar threads of, 
uh, people wanting to turn towards a more authoritarian figure across these countries. Well, you know, it's funny because I remember the first time I heard this concept, I was in I was in high school, and I had this kind of this uh, a very interesting English teacher, but he introduced me to the concept that the best form of government is a benevolent dictator. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, and, and you know, that's been echoed as I've gone through life. A lot of people have said that, and it is a really interesting concept. Do you think it's possible to to have someone who is looking out for your best interest, but is also has 100 percent control? Or do you think that human nature is always such that you you know absolute power is going to corrupt? Um, I mean, every, everything's possible. Is it I though? Mean, is it though, Chris DeCarlo? Yeah. Is everything possible? <laughs> is that really possible? <laughs> Well, there's a difference between possible and likely. Now, well, right, the, the problem yeah. is, I mean, you, you, you can't find examples of, you know, quote-unquote benevolent dictators throughout history. And, and, of course, some of that is perspective. I mean, no dictator is ever benevolent in the eyes of everybody, right? Somebody's yeah, got to lose. that's fair, right. You know, yeah. um, so you take a, like a character like, uh, I shouldn't say character, you take a, you know, a leader like uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, who's considered like one of the, one of the good emperors. Of, uh, and, and most people have this really positive view of of him, and I, I think you know someone like him is probably the closest we might have to this idea of like a benevolent dictator. He certainly was a dictator, um, but he seems to have really he's a, he's also a philosopher. You know, uh, he seems to have really had good intentions for the most part. But you know, for the people that the Roman legions massacred in Germany at the time, they probably don't look at him as being terribly benevolent. You know, um, so and and that's kind of fair, but. You know, the problem with, you know, a benevolent dictator like Marcus Aurelius is that you end up having a system that can't switch off of that once you have someone take over, like Commodus, you know, um, who was one of the worst emperors, you know, in uh, Roman history. And that was his son. You know, so what do you do when the benevolent emperor dies, you know, and inevitably is replaced by someone who isn't (laughs) so, um, you know, benevolent? So I I think that, you know, sort of truly benevolent dictators happen, but they are fairly rare. And because you've now established a dictatorship, they, uh, you know, in most situations end up being uh, replaced by someone who may not be as uh, as benevolent. And I think you can kind of find, too, is even with people who have fairly good intentions, if you give them enormous power, they still may misbehave in their personal lives. And, you know, a good example there for me might be you know, the emperor, I'm stuck on Roman emperors today, uh, you know, the emperor Constantine, who, you know, who also is, is largely viewed as a fairly positive emperor. You know, he, he really kind of salvaged the Roman Empire, at least for a little while. Um, and, uh, but, you know, he boiled his wife alive, you know, so, um, you know, is he benevolent or not, you know, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a bit of a extensive history there. So some people say, well, maybe she had it coming, but, um, but still, you know, it's kind of extreme. Uh, and, you know, so does he get to qualify as being a benevolent person or, or not? I mean, he certainly was powerful. I think he kind of fixed things at least temporarily for the Roman empire. I think he, you know, he probably did a lot of fairly positive things, but he also, had a really troubled personal life, and you know he certainly wasn't into due process the way that we think of it today. And uh, you know, so the question becomes: Is that what you? Is that what we want? You know, necessarily. You know, do we want a Marcus Aurelius or a Constantine to tell us? Um, you know, how to move forward, assuming they mean the best for us, and what do we do when they die? Um, and leave us with their crazy sons or, or daughters uh, to rule us. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think. I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, I would say that benevolence. When you talk about benevolent dictator, you're talking about how they treat the people, and not that I would. Yeah. Not that I would. You know, dismiss boiling his wife alive. <laughs> but but in the definition of benevolent dictator, yeah. I, I don't think that that. I don't think personal life counts. We we can overlook that as long yeah as long as the, the, the economy definition. stays high. Or... <laughs> well, I, I, could, I I can't overlook the D. I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing here. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think that's important because I think a lot of times you know it, we can overlook the deeds of a personal life when it comes to the definition of how they treat the people because I think for any uh, any official that's what's important. I, I know that yeah. the, I, and that, and that may be a tr- completely controversial topic, but I think sometimes. You know, obviously, boiling boiling his wife alive is is an extreme, as you mentioned. But I think you know a lot of people get caught up in in people's personal lives, especially you know with yeah. our with with especially with our presidents who aren't dictators at all. Mm. Um, yeah. But but I think we get we and, and even you know in in England is known for you know for the the li- loving the lives of the monarchs, which we're going to talk about in a second. But just this idea okay. <laughs> that you know what they do for the people 
their personal life also matters. You know, like for example, yeah. I, me personally, I, I don't care if if the president, male or female, is a philanderer. I just don't care. Yeah. I, I mean, is the country in good shape? Okay, then that's what we focus on. That's what makes them important. Yeah. Whatever happens in their private life is their own business. And, and I think yeah. we tend to, you know, in, throughout history, this is not just modern history. I mean, throughout history, we tend to judge people based on their private lives. And I think for a benevolent dictator, it's it's all about what they do, you know, their actions. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you mentioned this really interesting thing about once you've established a dictatorship, well, maybe the next guy or girl in line is going to, uh, you know, not, not be benevolent. <laughs> and I think this is really interesting, especially when we move on to monarchies, because I've always found this fascinating because you have a succession. So you have people people you know, mm-hmm. in line. But, you know, as you mentioned in the book, in throughout history, a lot of these royal families were all inbreeding. And as we know, mm-hmm. that can lead to a higher account of mental illness. And if there is a mental sure. illness, let's say narcissism, you know, uh, which can be linked to genetics, runs in the family. Well, now you're you have a much higher chance of creating yeah. a line of people who are going to be uh, mad, let's say. So, are there any moments in history that that were with a monarchy and and this kind of inherited genetic madness kind of changed history? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think probably um, one of the biggest countries to be affected by this is probably Spain. You know, um, who were you know particularly known for you know when they were under the uh, Habsburg monarchy, uh, they did exactly what you were suggesting that you know they were. Uh, they, they, the theory, of course, it, people didn't understand genetics, and people had this theory, of course, that you know the uh, aristocracy, you know, had a divine right to rule, and therefore you didn't you didn't want to mix their blood with common people, you know, because mm-hmm. that would water right. it down, right? You know, so how do you manage not to do that? You marry everybody to their cousins, you know, which you know mm-hmm. you can get away with for a generation or two. You, you can't get a gen- away with it for like five generations, you know. Eventually, it sort of comes back and bites you. Um, so with the you know Spanish Habsburgs, eventually you get sort of the accumulation of both physical and mental you know defects. Now, now of course you know the history of Spain is complicated, so we can't say that you know their uh, collapse as a global empire is due only to the inbreeding of their um, you know their monarchs. But it, it, it certainly was one factor. You know that there mm-hmm. clearly was the degeneration in the quality of the Spanish Habsburgs. You know up until the final um, Habsburg king Charles II, who you know, according to contemporary accounts, would would probably be considered to have something very close to an, a full blown intellectual disability. I mean, whether he necessarily would qualify or not, he was certainly in the threshold range and had a number of physical you know problems with him. Um, you know, as well. You know, at the end of really Spain's heyday, you know, they were kind of stuck with him, um, and they didn't really know what to do with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and because he was you know, infertile in, in combination with his various mental defects, he didn't produce any heirs. And, uh, you know, and when he died, that resulted in this, you know, the war of the Spanish succession, which was, was pretty much the end point of Spain as a, you know, a global, you know, entity. Uh, you end up with the, you know, the French essentially assuming, you know, authority in, in uh, Europe and the British, you know, assuming authority uh, on the seas and, and such. And so that's kind of like the end of Spain is really a, a major player. Uh, in European politics, and you know, and again, there are lots of geographical and economic reasons, mm-hmm. um, you know, that contributed to the decline of Spain. Um, but but certainly, the, the diminishing quality intellectually and the quality of their uh, their rulers was uh, you know a major part of that. And and Charles II wasn't the first of the Spanish Habsburgs to demonstrate mental illness, um, you know, as well. It was a sort of an ongoing thing that they had, uh, you know, struggles with. But, uh, yeah, so I, th- I think we can kind of say that, at least in my opinion, that certainly the madness of uh, the Spanish um, nobility uh, within the Habsburg monarchy was one contributing factor, at very least, to the decline of Spain as a uh, as a global power. I mean, they they really were, like, you know, the equivalent of the Soviet Union, you know, for a while mm-hmm. uh, there in European politics. It was them and, and the Ottoman Turks, really, were kind of the big two superpowers. And Spain really declined kind of quickly, and, and, and in part because their rulers really kind of lost the ability to assume any kind of central authority. Uh, and that diminished, um, you know, the, 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 the power of the central monarchy to, uh, you know, to rule and create a chaos and, uh, and disorganization in Spain that other powers were able to take advantage of. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it that that really, I mean, it, the monarchy. It's uh, it's interesting from a historical standpoint, you, you know, and a psychological standpoint because you have a succession of rulers, you have an order, 
you know, with with the other stuff, you know, with, with things we talked about, when leaders come into power during tumultuous times in a society's period of history, in society's history, you, the people are, you know, they're elected. It might be the madness of the masses, which you also talk about, you know, electing people, and eventually you can, hopefully, if they haven't changed society and the laws enough, you can get rid of them, or even even if it takes a revolution. <clears throat> and with monarchies, you're, it's it's an order. I mean, obviously, Fran- France yeah. had a, a revolution and they got rid of their monarchy, but. But it's this interesting. You always know who's coming next. You know, you you know yeah. what's come. You know, you know what's on on the doorstep, so to speak. Uh, you know, and I, I did this episode on poisons and how you know for how important madness was in poisons because you had people who wanted to assume the throne. You had these people with these dark personality traits who would just murder the person in front of them in order to to, to gain yeah. power. Uh, so it just it creates this interesting atmosphere for exactly what you're talking about. One of the other things I, w- I want to get to before we run out of time uh, is this idea of religion and madness and how kind of religious zeal can kind of lead to madness and, and how it affects people in history. You know, some extreme examples, obviously, would would be, um, you know, Jonestown, mm-hmm. th- things like that. But but also, you, you know, you mentioned, you make this great argument in the book, and, and I've always thought this, and it was nice to hear someone kind of mention this, but even Steve Jobs and, and the love of, of <laughs> Apple computers is almost like a religious zeal. Yeah. Um, this, it's such an interesting comparison. So how does, you know, give me some examples in history uh, of, of where religious zeal is kind of how that's taken over and, and changed history. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, so I mean, of course, some of the uh, uh, examples, you know, involve using religion to unite societies again, and, and, and a lot of those can be, you know, positive. You know, so it's not that religion is always positive or negative, of course, but uh, uh, you know, you do have pro- probably the most, you know, dramatic example uh, off the top of my head I can think of is is the way that you know Muhammad, you know, united the tribes of. Uh, Arabia and just like spread Islam like crazy across you know most of Africa, large parts of Europe, and then off into Asia and such. And that was a major historical mm-hmm. um, change, you know, in the uh, first millennium that came from this you know religious zeal. But a lot of it was the sort of evangelical element of like spreading the faith, and that united disparate ethnic groups of individuals, um, and uh, you know, and being able to do so. You know, I don't know whether you think it's a positive or negative. Of course, it's very perspective. Right. You know the People that were conquered would think of it as a negative. The people that were doing the the conquering would think of it as a positive. You know, but uh, yeah. So you oftentimes will see you know religion used as again sort of a narrative for political or social goals. You know, and sort of in fairness, you know, you can we can turn it around and say that the the Crusades, of course, were you know in part uh, the enthusiasm for them was pumped up by religious uh, faith. Um, but you know their mission, if you will, was probably nothing that we would recognize in the you know in the new testament at, at very least you know i don't think christ ever says make sure to conquer anybody that you know takes over jerusalem from the christians <laughs> um you know so there is this kind of distorting effect that you know people can use religion in order to um you know create a narrative for you know uh, political uh or uh, you know social goals but uh yeah i mean at the, at the very extremes i mean you mentioned like these cults um and such and so you can see this kind of you know people are always looking for some kind of meaning like, the, the world is confusing and it's, and it's scary because we're all going to die right you know so part of it is there seems to be the sort of innate part of human nature to try to find some kind of meaning that gives our lives something to hang on to other than we're just a bunch of cells that are here to make more bunches of cells and pass them on mm. uh, throughout time, and then we die, and nobody's ever going to remember us, and we didn't really do anything any right. any more than a tree or a potato did, uh, you know, yeah. for instance. Uh, so we always seem to be like grabbing towards this. So you know, at the extremes, yeah, you can find individuals who are really, really struggling. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Jonestown you know, uh, cult or the Branch Davidians. You know, there are these you know different doomsday cults that you can find. You know, across different countries, and you know, and people can really kind of gravitate to, towards these things because they're looking for some kind of meaning in life. And then they sacrifice all rationality. You know, they, their own well-being, and, and and in some cases, you know, commit suicide and die. Um, in the name of uh, you know, these religious faiths, and, uh, and and one thing I kind of surprised my students with is this idea that when we talk about like extreme like cultism, 
that not all cults are religious. I mean, you can find like, you know, mental health cults and, you know, you can find, uh, you know, business, you know, related cults, you know, CrossFit can be considered a cult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So as well, there, there certainly are, and, you know, uh, with some care, you know, I think something people mentioned like Amway is a good example, you know, perhaps that, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of like uh, pyramidy, you know, sort of, uh, uh, there's a, there's a specific word for it that I'm I'm forgetting the name for it, but uh, um, but anyway, these kind of like economic schemes where you enlist people and then they pay you and you pay the person above you, that that kind of mm-hmm. uh, structure. A lot of those can you know take on some some characteristics of cult like you know beliefs and activities and uh, you know and that sort of stuff. Like the second most famous Chris Ferguson when he did the Ponzi scheme for full tilt poker. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah so that, that could be it. Yeah. <laughs> now, some of, some of that. I mean, if you're like the person who's developing it, you, that that may be simple dark triad stuff. Yeah. You know, so there is right. this kind of question right. of like right with, the with, uh, with 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 the cults. Does a cult leader really believe it? You know, mm-hmm. is it sort of. Uh, in some cases, they might. In some cases, they might not. Uh, you know, are they just sort of uh, you know shilling a particular belief to a bunch of, you know, rubes you know, in their minds that they're going to take money from. Um, you know, and so there's, there are probably some cases where the, where the cult leaders really do believe their uh, extreme vision of how the world works. And there are probably some examples where the cult leader really just have to make money or, or have a lot of sex uh, in some cases, you know, depending upon the uh, the particular way the cult is uh, set up. And those, and those are probably these, like, like I said, these really kind of extreme dark triad individuals where they're psychopaths or narcissistic and they're Machiavellian. Um, you know, and they're setting up this like crazy belief and, and and dragging in a bunch of individuals who are essentially victims of their own uh, selfish uh, self interest. Um, you know, I think you can see that you know a lot of like the you know Christian denominations. You know, were uh, I'm trying to think of some examples on the top of my head. Were you know very clearly it, it really was a business you know, that looked like a church. You know, and uh, the individuals that were at, were at the center of it. Well, church um, seats. There's a whole. There's a whole. There's a whole movement for people to seed churches, and it's essentially what you're mm-hmm. saying. I mean, it's they're, they're, it's like franchising a church and. And they yeah. basically get money, and it's it's a it's a money making operation. It's a business, but but it has the front of being a church. And so the people right. involved are you know you you gain people who want to do the church, but the people behind it are really just there to make money. It's it's it's, it's a whole it's a whole business model. There's a church seating. Right. Yeah. And I think there are these great examples of, you know, I, I, you know, uh, thinking of the example like Tammy Faye and Jim Baker, for, for example, mm-hmm. with the PTO club, and all that stuff that, you know, really, when you get down to it, you know, and, and I can't say they weren't at all sincere, of course, but there was this element of a really sketchy, you know, business model that was underlying, you know, the, the, the religious faith and, and, uh, and, and the sense of, um, you know, always being, you know, send us some more money, send us more money. That was, that's kind of like the drawing, you know, and of course, you know, lots of faiths, you know, uh, operate to some extent on tithing. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, some religious organizations really seem to drive this sense home of send us more money, send us more money. And some of it, I think, can get really predatory, you know, when you're kind of saying if you're if you have a an illness, you know, don't worry about paying for your medication. Send us in faith, you know, this right. amount of money, and and then you know God will intervene. And you know, right. so I, I think that some of these things really do have very predatory models. And uh, uh, you know, and I think there have been investigations of some of these organizations that have pretty clearly demonstrated that, including like the PTO Club. You know, so those, those are some things that I think you you can see with with religion is, is that you know psychopaths sometimes can really take advantage of people's religious faith um, in order to. Yeah. Yeah. In in order to you know predate upon them or shape them in terms of you know being a driving force towards some other political or uh, social goal, like, like in the example of the of, of the Crusades, you know the, the the whole goal being to take over you know parts of the Middle East. Um, but the way that people got enthusiasm for that was sort of whipping up religious fer- you know, fervor mm-hmm. and you know, promising you know that you know your time in um, in limbo will be uh, not limbo um, uh, yeah the other halfway point I just blanking on the name of it purgatory yeah thank you purgatory will will be reduced you know if you kill enough infidels and years of Catholic upbringing I brought that one right to the surface. <laughs> Yeah, I'm Episcopalian. We sh- we just skip past purgatory, you know. So uh, anyway, so <laughs> well, I, I think I think it's. I mean, it, it, religious fervor is really interesting. And I, I want to before we run out of time, I want to relate this because I really liked your analysis of Steve Jobs and the cult of Mac, uh, because yeah. <laughs> I, because I think this is really fascinating because I have seen people like 
almost die for 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 Macintosh yeah. computers and Apple computers and, and how how they've shaped their lives, how much better they are. And and when you look at the iPhone, right? Like and I'm not I'm not gonna bag on the iPhone. It's how most people are getting this show is through the iPhone yeah. and through iTunes. Yeah. Not the only place, <laughs> by the way. There's several other ways you can get it. Uh, but you know, they he created this device which changed the world. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. if you would define him as yeah. mad or not. We'll get to that in a second. But but he changed the world. But you know, a couple years later, now you've got people who are literally addicted to their phone. They can't put it down. They they're yeah. they're always on it. The people are getting hit in traffic. I remember when Pokemon Go was really big. You got people walking off cliffs staring mm-hmm. at their phone. Right? <laughs> so like, how great is the iPhone? And it changed history, but it also changed history <laughs> you know i mean good and yeah, bad. yeah. <laughs> and so um so what do you think about that i mean do you think of him as a madman do you think he was that he that he was benevolent and and what do you think about this advancement for the culture yeah i mean obviously we you know i do talk about steve jobs in the book and you know he's, he's certainly listed uh, so i mean and of course it depends on what you're thinking about is as what do we mean by madman again so uh, you know by the by the strict definition of, of how i use it in the book I, I think there's at least an argument he probably could qualify and, and it's important to point out that that doesn't mean that he's evil or that he's a bad person or, or anything of that sort. But but he was extreme, you know, in uh, many respects in terms of his personality, in terms of his you know interactions with others. Uh, I mean, I think that became kind of the, the cult of Steve Jobs was not just that he had produced these wonderful products because lots of people do that, um, but also that he just was this fascinating, captivating, highly charismatic mm-hmm. um, individual who, in in some ways personally in my opinion was was also kind of nuts you know mm-hmm. uh, and but you know and yeah. your professional and, and opinion difficult. i don't want to add that you were you know you <laughs> it's a professional opinion it's not just not like yeah. my opinion which means nothing yeah. it's, it's a professional opinion here yeah yeah well i, I think there's i think there's you know reading you know his biographies are very easy to find and they're very fascinating to read there's, like, there's a couple good biographies for him some some long some short depending on how much you want to read but you know i think they all make the case that you know jobs you know, had goods and bads like all this does, but he was ex- more extreme, you know, perhaps than most of us were in terms of his beliefs about the world. He did have some, what we might call in psychology, some magical thinking, you know, and this kind of stuff, um, which doesn't mean that he's psychotic, you know, but it just means that he's a bit different uh, from the rest of us. He was, you know, difficult, um, extremely difficult uh, to work with uh, for uh, some individuals. And that hints again at being, there being some kind of personality issue, perhaps, uh, you know, for him. So, so I, mean, I think there definitely is a case to suggest that Steve Jobs did not look like the average human being, you know, in, in many respects. And, and in some cases, that did cost him um, and cost other people. Um, and that's where you sometimes see some of this destructiveness. But, but on the other hand, he was brilliant, you know. So there are lots of positives about him as well. He was, he was a visionary. You know, and I think, you know, the, the case I kind of make about visionaries in the book, you know, sort of briefly at least is, you know, Probably most visionaries fail, <laughs> you know. So we kind of right. like have this like uh, obsession with visionaries that you know people are fascinating because they you know buck the odds and they right. persisted, they were stubborn, they, they they insisted on not taking good advice and won, uh, and that's great. They make for great stories, but it's important to remember that most people like that fail miserably. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Right. They, and take right. others with them. You know, um, so Jobs is this right. an incredible success story. You know, um, but you know it came at the cost of some personal relationships for him and you know other people had a difficult time working under him i think there's an argument that some of his family you know um you know not all of them but uh, some of his family may have experienced some consequences of of, of who he was and um and, and on arguably even the way he approached his final you know uh medical illness uh, may have been influenced somewhat by you know his personality and maybe things would have been a bit different you know we don't know i'm not a medical doctor so we don't right, know right. um you know but i think the case can be made that there was a destructive element to steve jobs but and that doesn't take away from the fact that there was a brilliant aspect of steve jobs mm-hmm. and that uh you know and maybe i'm focusing a little bit too much on the negatives but on the other hand he did have people that loved him he has family that to this day swear that he was the greatest human being you know mm-hmm. so I, you know i do want to be fair to him uh in that sense but uh but but i think there definitely is a case that you know he was psychologically an unusual individual at very least i'm you know putting it in a little bit careful language um and uh, that most of us probably would not have liked working in apple under him um you know given his management style but uh and in his case it just worked out brilliantly but uh, and there are other individuals we could think of, like maybe like you know uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, or that kind of fit into the same mold. Um, 
that uh, you know are brilliant visionaries. But, but again, the reality is that uh, most of these difficult you know, visionary leaders crash and burn. Um, you know, there have been, um, you know, very visible examples of this, whether we're talking about like Enron or, or what was the, I can't think of the name of it, the, the kind of like Thanatos or something like that. I can't remember the, the woman's name that, that ran it, uh, who, you know, almost, you know, seemed to be mimicking Steve Jobs and, you know, she's looked at as being a, um, a uh, huge visionary leader until it turned out it was largely due to fraud that you know this she had this company where it was a blood test uh, that supposedly would detect illnesses oh, without right, yeah. drawing much blood. I, I, can't, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, uh, but uh, you know she's now under I, I believe she's you know under investigation or perhaps is on trial for uh, you know fraudulent behaviors and things like that. So yeah, I, I think probably you know we we get obsessed with this idea of this visionary leader who uh, is going to really really change the world. That and that does happen. And but again, I think the cautionary note is, is oftentimes people that have that mindset fail um, because they are so extreme, um, you know. And so there again, we have that sort of confirmation bias. We focus on the successful cases and think that's what we should all do, and uh, ignore all the multitude of cases that didn't turn out uh, nearly as well. And, and that's where I think the, the book is kind of interesting. I kind of mentioned like you do get these visionary leaders like Alexander the Great, you, you know, who really are kind of looked back on largely positively. Uh, you know, in uh, history. I mean, there, there certainly is a negative case to be made about uh, Alexander the Great, but history generally remembers him as this, you know, wonderful military leader. But for every Alexander the Great, you know, there are a multitude of, you know, Caligulas or Elagabaluses and, you know, and other Hitlers and Stalins and other leaders that we probably wouldn't look at as being uh, terribly great. They all were visionary, you know, in different ways, <laughs> but right. most of them don't turn out very well. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, that is the most amazing about the book is that just how much madness does shape history, how many times you do have yeah. these people who are on the extremes who come into power at spe specific times and end up changing the course of history. Uh, you know, maybe Steve Jobs is just the most recent, but he's definitely not the, not the first or the last. Uh, you know, and, and I, I think you make a good point there. So how can people find the book? How can people find you if they want to get some, some more examples of this? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is available through uh, any of the major online uh, realtors like Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble. It should be available in bookstores as well. Um, in terms of getting in touch with me, I have a website, which is just my name. Uh, so it's uh, Christopher J. Ferguson. You know, no spaces. It's all together. ChristopherJFerguson.com. Uh, they can get in touch with me there. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, CJFerguson1111. And uh, happy to, you know, if people have any questions or just want to give me some feedback on the book, um, particularly if it's good feedback, I'm always happy to get it. Uh, but uh, even, even bad feedback is fine, too. Uh, so uh, happy to answer any questions or talk history with people. So I'm looking forward to some good conversations coming out of this. Uh, so I think – so that's how you get the book. Uh, it's a great book, as I mentioned. You're going to stick around. We're going to talk about Madness of the Masses as a quick little bonus episode. But – Chris, I want to thank you so much. Uh, Chris the Conqueror, I should say. Pardon pardon my, my intrusion there. Chris the Conqueror, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me on today. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And if you like the show, you're going to want to subscribe. You don't want to miss an episode. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. And if you really want to, if you really want to, really want to help out the show, think about leaving a review and even passing this along to your friends on social media because that is how the show grows. And, of course, we are on social media. If you want to find us, the easiest way to do that is good to go to fascinatingnouns.com where we have all of our social media at the bottom of the page. And that includes Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube. And, obviously, if you're on the Fascinating Nouns webpage, you can find all of the four previous episodes, previous guests. You can find more information on this show. And you can even subscribe to the newsletter, which will tell you all about our upcoming episodes and topics and all of our other shows, including Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, which is one of my other podcasts. And if you like the show, you might love everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank <laughs> you.